On their mission to the Zoramites, Alma and Amulek teach that there's humility and then there's humility, that not all beliefs are created equal, and that the word is in Christ unto salvation. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. This week's lesson is Alma chapter 32 through 35, Plant This Word in Your Hearts. Now the first thing I want to express in this podcast episode is a thank you. There were a couple of individuals, and you know who you are, who found their way to our donate page on gospeltoctrine.com and figured out how to donate and then followed through with a generous donation. Now I'm not going to retire to an island in the Pacific anytime soon, but nevertheless, this is well beyond what is expected. There's, there's no expectation that listening to this podcast, you owe me anything. But there were some people who asked, how can I contribute to the cause? And I do have costs associated with the podcast. And, and those people followed through, and I'm so grateful. Thank you. It does make a difference. Now, we have a couple of questions this week. The first one comes from Paul in Blue Mountains, Australia. Paul asks, in the lesson on Alma chapters 5 through 7, you talked about hell as being like burning in a lake of fire and brimstone. You've also taught something similar in a previous lesson, that on Judgment Day, we will be brought to a bright recollection of our sins, and this suffering will be like burning in fire and brimstone. So my question is, what do the scriptures say about hell? Is it like burning in fire and brimstone? Is it actually fire and brimstone? Or is it something else? Thank you for that question, Paul. And to answer it, uh, we'll go back, I guess, to last year when we were studying the New Testament. And if you were to try to, from the Old and New Testaments, get, an, get a feel for what the word hell meant, uh, you would be spending quite a long time and you'd have some differing ideas. Now, Jews and Christians have different ideas about what hell is, and Christians have widely varied views among themselves on what hell is. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that when people die, they cease to exist until the resurrection, and then hell is God skipping you, God skipping over you for the resurrection, and you just continue not to exist. Basically, you you never are again, and that's hell. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those who believe, yes, that uh, hell is a lake, a literal lake of fire and brimstone. But brimstone is is a sulfuric compound often present in volcanoes or in hot springs. So it's a geothermal indicator. So it was basically a place that is uh, desert and it's uh, it's dried out, it's been blasted by the heats for the inner fires of the earth itself, and therefore it's a cursed place and it's very hot and uninhabitable. And that is why they describe it as fire and brimstone, brimstone being the ancient name for this this chemical compound. Incidentally, in the Old Testament, one of the names used for hell is Gehenna, which was the name for one of the valleys alongside of Jerusalem. And this was the valley where they would cast their garbage for it to be burned. And so the question arises in many minds, did it did Gehenna mean that you would be cast aside or that you would be burned and tormented? And so that, that question persists into modern times. Uh, so you might, you might find yourself... As Joseph Smith described, there was there was no certainty by resorting to the Bible because they would interpret the same passage in, in so many different ways to prevent all uh, recourse to the Scripture itself. 
But with the Book of Mormon, with this resource of the Book of Mormon, we can actually answer this question. And it's exactly as you described, Paul, that it is like a lake of fire and brimstone. Now, both Benjamin, in twice in two chapters in King Benjamin's address, I believe it's Mosiah chapters 2 and 3, at the end of two chapters right in a row, he describes what it is like to be in hell. And what it is, is we, we arrive before God, and we have this consciousness of our guilt, and God forces this consciousness upon us, or I should say he removes the veil, and then all of a sudden we realize, oh, that, those were the choices I made, and that is what they meant, and this is why, this is all the knowledge that I had deep down, and so therefore I know that I sinned against God in full knowledge of what I was doing, and therefore here I am in God's presence, and I can't deny it. And Alma again repeats this in his uh, sermon. I can't remember whether it's, I believe it's to the, the denizens of Zarahemla in, in Alma chapter 5. He describes what hell is like, and the same thing. It's basically arriving in front of God and being in his presence and then wishing that you could hide and put something in between you and God to cover up the shame because you realize all the terrible choices that you've made. You've put his own suffering in his own plan, his sacrifices that he made to give you a chance. You've put it at naught. And I don't believe there will be a lot of vindication for sinners in that day. They won't think, well, good, this is what I wanted all along. And nevertheless, it is what they wanted all along, and God will give it to them. They wanted the separation from God. I should say we wanted the separation from God because we all have this sinful nature and we have the possibility of being redeemed and the jury's still out. Uh, For those of us who are still alive, it's possible for us to go either way. So hopefully we will choose to to have that not happen to us, that we will take advantage of the miraculous opportunity for escape that exists from this terrible fate. And that's why I've said on several occasions that it is a great act of love for these prophets to describe to those they're teaching the nature of hell, because they still have a chance to escape. And it would be very cruel if you knew that somebody had a huge day of reckoning coming up, uh, you would be cruel indeed not to let them uh, know exactly how to escape the worst aspects or the worst consequences or the worst outcome of that day. So that's what these prophets are trying to do. And that's what hell is, is what happens afterwards. You meet up with God, you, w- you wish you could hide, and then your choice is made. God reveals that you have chosen to be separated from him, and therefore he has no redemption for you because you have refused it. And then this door closes, and it closes forever. And I'm not saying that that door closes uh, the the instant that we die. I believe that uh, there is a space between death and resurrection where a lot of work can be done as well. That's certainly doctrine. But uh, at some point, there will be a final judgment. And then when that door closes, that's it. The, The decision is made, and you now exist in a place where God can never come, and you can never return to him. And what a terrible consciousness that would be. It would be like... What, what Alma and what Benjamin were trying to do was describe the worst thing they could imagine, putting you in the worst landscape they could imagine you being in, which is a lake of fire and brimstone. But they probably had some spiritual idea, some inkling of what it felt like. That's the best input I can offer on your question, Paul. Thank you for asking that. Our next question comes from Jacqueline in Phoenix. 
She says, This week I had a question about the statement that Alma clapped his hands upon them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, referring to Alma chapter 31, verse 36. When Alma claps his hands upon his missionary companions. Jacqueline writes, I picture a tent revival meeting with the preacher calling up people, clapping them on the forehead, and calling them saved. My aunt used to take me to these meetings when I was a kid. I wasn't sure what to make of it then or what to make of this scripture. Is it perhaps a ritual or maybe a blessing with the laying on of hands? Well, Jacqueline, that's exactly right. It is the laying on of hands, and I think it's appropriate that it For you, it summoned up an image of a tent revival meeting because this was the environment that Joseph Smith grew up in. And as we know, Joseph Smith translated the the engravings on the golden plates not in an objective, perfect way, but in the way that was best for him, the way that most closely described the ideas that were coming into his mind for him. And because he had been in this exact kind of tent revival meeting that you describe, for him, to have someone lay hands on someone else was the phrase that was used was clapping their hands upon them. But it doesn't mean that this was done with violence or with a noise. It just meant that laying on of hands had this name in Joseph Smith's place and time, and people would have understood what he meant by that. For us, we might need a little bit of interpretation to realize what it is is the laying on of hands. So Alma, the prophet, was conferring either a calling or an office in the priesthood, an ordination, to enable other missionaries to help him in his missionary work. So appreciate that question, Jacqueline. If you have a question about one of our lessons in the Come Follow Me curriculum, or any question that requires a scriptural answer, send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Well, I know I said this last week, but it's even more true this week that we are dealing with one of the most famous chapters in the Book of Mormon. I don't think there are too many people who could name two dozen chapters in the Book of Mormon and tell you what they were about exactly. But I think a lot of people could say, Alma chapter 32, that's about faith, and they'd be right. So this is a very profound sermon on faith in the nature of what you would find more in the New Testament than the Old. Even though the Book of Mormon people, the Nephites, are living an Old Testament existence, they're living according to the Law of Moses. And here we have Alma speaking like Paul the Apostle, teaching people how to have faith. And that's because the Jews did not see themselves, by and large, in Old Testament times as a proselytizing religion. But this lesson really just doesn't exist without missionary work. You don't have to tell people how to believe. You know, if you were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, for example, you find Moses there telling the children of Israel that they needed to circumcise their hearts and and no longer be stiff-necked and love the Lord their God with all their might. But it's just a little bit different when you're teaching people who grew up in a religion than when you're teaching people who are adopting a new religion. And you can compare and contrast Alma chapter 32 and Deuteronomy chapter 10 if you want to understand that difference. So here's Alma trying to get the Zoramites, the the people of the Zoramites who are willing to listen to him, uh, trying to get them to understand even what it means to believe in something. So as a little bit of background from last time, just brief review, the Zoramites were one of the seven tribes of Lehi's descendants that had thrown their lot in with the Nephites, but now it appears that they've traveled en masse to a place that is sort of on the border between 
Nephites and Lamanites. And there's just briefly, there's a, there's a, uh, a metaphorical lesson. There's a figurative lesson in that, right? Don't, don't live on the border between Nephites and Lamanites. So they are about to dissent. The, the fear is that they're going to throw their lot in with the Lamanites from now on. And in fact, the history of dissenters is not good as far as whether they're going to be peaceful towards the Nephites after they dissent. Once they go over to the Lamanites, they usually bring back the lame, um, come back, but only with an army of Lamanites behind them. And they end up being a huge source of torment to their former brethren. So Alma, seeking to avoid this outcome, goes to preach to them. And he finds them in a state of apostasy where they make a big show of prayer one day a week and then do no worship. And so we talked about how, for them, religion and status seeking were the same thing. And this was basically virtue signaling on a mass scale in a public way. So it's no wonder that Alma is having no luck whatsoever in teaching the Zoramites because their religion for them, belief for them, only exists to look good to other people. It, the, chapter 31 talks a lot about the trappings of wealth that they wear to church and that they wear in their normal lives. So there was jockeying for position among the Zoramites who could be holier, who could be richer, and they weren't in any conflict in those two things. Their pride and their religion went hand in hand. So Alma must have been teaching a group that fit this description because another group comes up behind him and he turns around and he sees what it what the description that is given in Alma chapter 32 is that he says in verse 8, I behold that ye are lowly in heart. He turns around and he's immediately overjoyed and he turns his back on the people he was just teaching. Now, I thought it was a little hard to imagine that a missionary would stop in mid-lesson and be willing to just start teaching somebody new, not even finish the lesson. So the only inference that I can draw is that he was teaching some of these people that were hard-hearted, and they just weren't willing to be receptive, but for whatever reason, they were sort of listening. And then when he found some people who were actually willing to listen, he was overjoyed. It says in verse 3, it says, they were poor as to the things of the world, and they were poor in heart. And this put me immediately in mind of Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Alma references this idea when he says, I behold that ye are lowly in heart, and if so, blessed are ye. Now I imagine that these poor Zoramites were probably confused at that statement. You and I, to, to you and me, it probably doesn't seem out of place, but that's because we're used to New Testament thinking, a New Testament paradigm. But this was actually quite revolutionary in the time of Jesus. This is part of what I've called in my lessons, and, and I'm not the originator of this statement, but it's part of what I've called the upside-down kingdom. Jesus, the kingdom of God, as Jesus described it and taught it, was actually totally reversed from what they expected a kingdom to be like. The powerful people were not at the top. The rich people were not the nobles in the kingdom. There was no pyramidal structure that uh, preserved this hierarchy. It was the poor in heart, the poor in spirit that were blessed. It was the peacemakers. It was those who hungered and thirsted after righteousness. And you don't hunger and thirst unless there's something lacking in your life. And this is why Alma is able to say that you're blessed if you're poor, if you're lowly in heart. They probably felt like they weren't very blessed. To them, this would have been a very strange teaching. 
I want to address something right at the start here too that I think a misconception that most most people have. So we read this we read these verses and we think, oh, wow, these people were really prepared to hear the gospel. And Alma finds them in a state of humility and then he teaches them the gospel and they're so receptive. And it wasn't until I read it this time that I thought, you know what? That's not what happened at all. This was a very, very difficult conversion. You know, I had another question that I want to read. And this is from Margaret. She says, you often refer to the results of missionary work as, quote, Alma converted so-and-so, or, quote, Amma and Ammon and his brothers converted, dot, 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 etc. As a convert of 52 years, I want to help you understand that no one converts another person. Yes, missionaries bring us the gospel and teach us, but it is the Holy Ghost who converts. It is never the missionary. Margaret, I want to thank you for that description. And uh, just a little quick story before I get back to the lesson. One of the things that made me want to go on a mission was the the movie, the church video that many of you won't have seen because it sort of dates me, but it's called Labor of Love. And in that, uh, the whole point of that church video is that there's a missionary returning from his mission and he's seated next to a man in a plane and he, he through a series of flashbacks, tells about his mission. And the guy at one point asks him, how many people did you convert? And he says, oh, I didn't convert anyone. Uh, conversion is something very personal that happens between you and the Lord. And I always took, I took that to heart, and I've always remembered that. So, yes, I, I do sometimes use this terminology. I, I, I think the word convert sort of has two meanings, and one is the deeper process of conversion that happens on a very personal level between you and the Lord, and the other is the missionary who facilitates that conversion. We sometimes speak of them erroneously or no, as converting them. But I do understand the difference, and and I think it is worth pointing out. So I thank you for doing that, Margaret. Uh, In any case, these poor Zoramites arrive at Alma's feet in uh, verse 5 of chapter 32, and their question is, we have no place to worship. That's really all they're concerned about. They say, look, you're teaching out here in the middle of nowhere. You must know something that we don't. We want to worship, but we're not allowed in the synagogues. Uh, The this status game that they're playing doesn't include us because we have no status to confer. We're too poor. Nobody cares what we think. And therefore, they don't even let us into the synagogue at all. And this was, this was a way for them to have status. We're, this is an exclusive church. There is no uh, exclusivity unless somebody's being excluded. And these were the, there were winners and losers in Zoramite society, and these were the losers. And so that's really their only question is, we have no place to worship. So what this doesn't mean is that they are 100% ready for conversion. It only means that they are dissatisfied with their situation. In my mind, I see this teaching, this series of teachings, as probably just one representative sample of many teachings that Alma and Amulek and all of the others with them had to do over the course of maybe an extended period of time. And eventually they found the converts that they were seeking, but it would have taken a lot of work. To support that idea, you can look in verse 12. And Alma says, look, it's it's well that you're cast out of your synagogues. And the reason he gives is, it's well that you're cast out that you may be humble because it's necessary for you to be humble. If you're humble, that's the only way you can learn wisdom. And sometimes if somebody's humbled, then they will find repentance. Do you know the reason he doesn't give them? He doesn't, the thing that he doesn't say, he doesn't say, well, actually, it's really good 
that you've been cast out of that terrible synagogue because you know what? They're teaching a false religion there. The things that they teach in that synagogue are really awful and they would lead you down the wrong path. Now that would have been totally true for him to say, but he refrains from saying it because these poor Zoramites, they were caught up emotionally. They had a they had an investment in be- belonging to that religion. They had labored with their own hands to construct those synagogues, and they probably wanted, they still wanted to be a part of that religion. So rather than immediately attack that religion and say, look, uh, you know what, it's great that you've been kicked out because it's a terrible religion. Alma gives them a lesson on, of all things, epistemology. And if you were with us last time, you'll remember that epistemology is the study of how we know what we know. Alma doesn't even talk about Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is central to his religion, but he doesn't even bring Jesus up for several verses of the whole chapter. He doesn't say, you need to believe in Jesus. What he says is, let's talk a little bit about how we know what we know. So that is the description of Alma chapter 32. It's a description of Alma teaching people who aren't quite ready to hear, hey, you know what you guys have been hearing for a while now about how Jesus Christ isn't real? Well, yeah, that's a load of hooey, and you need to throw over all your old beliefs and believe what I tell you. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, let's talk about how you know the difference between truth and error. And this is, it turns out, this is the most important teaching that there is, because with it, once you're humble, so there's humility is first, but then once you're humble, if you know how to tell the difference between truth and error, and you're seeking the truth, you will discover it. Eventually, you'll happen upon the truth. God will see to that, and you will recognize it. So, Alma, this is very wise on the part of Alma to realize these guys need to know the different, how to tell the difference between truth and error first and foremost. And then I can let Amulek bear witness of Jesus Christ. He's got as powerful a testimony as I do. He's seen angels too. He's seen the same angels I have. So Alma, Amulek can teach about Christ. What I need to teach these Zoramites is how they can know the difference between truth and error. And then follows this marvelous allegory about planting the seed. Uh, this allegory is very similar to Jesus Christ's teaching the parable of the sower. Now, if you recall, the parable of the sower deals with four different types of soil. This parable, or this allegory, on the other hand, it deals with a single seed. But, sim- but in similar ways, it basically says, if, this, uh, if you want to receive the fruit of living the gospel, then you have to treat this seed with care. In, in Jesus' parable, it, treating it with care involved, was involved in choosing which type of soil it was going to get thrown into. And it was only afterward you looked back and you saw, oh, I was, uh, you know, that that was bad soil. It was a bad. It was a person who had a problem with the gospel for this reason. And then you could learn from their mistakes and make a better choice in your own life. What Alma is doing is instead saying everybody has the same seed. Now, what you want, you've all had the opportunity to take a seed from nothing and grow it into a little seedling plant and then into a big tree. You know exactly what that process looks like. So, I have a seed here. You, right now, you have no idea whether this seed is any good. But if you have the desire to believe, then you can find out. How do you find out whether a seed is good? Well, I'll tell you. You put it in the ground. You give it the required amount of attention and sunlight and water, whatever it is that you need. you got to put it in the right kind of soil. And then, if it's a good seed, 
you will see a little plant come up. And that's all he says. This is his teaching. He's saying, look, guys, here's how you can know the truth. Right now, you don't believe in Jesus Christ because you've been taught every week of your life. You've, you've been taught that Christ is a lie. And that's what they say from the Ramiumptum. And this is the church that you want to go into, that you have real urgent desires. You wish you could be inside that synagogue that you built every week, hearing this lie repeated over and over again that Christ isn't real, that Christ will never come. But guess what? I'm telling you that he is, and that claim is a seed. If you want to find out if it's true, here's how you find out. And so that's all he's teaching them is, I'm going to tell you how to know whether something's true. If you plant a seed and you see a leaf come out of the ground, there is no doubt that that was a good seed. So he says your knowledge is perfect in that thing. So he talks a little bit about the difference between faith which is also equated with belief and a perfect knowledge. He says, look, you're not going to have a perfect knowledge that you know this fruit is desirable or it's the, it's the fruit that leads to salvation or even that there's going to be fruit at all. Right now, what we're talking about is you want to know whether this seed is a good seed. And if it swelleth and sprouteth and beginneth to grow, then you can know with a perfect knowledge that it is a good seed. And now your faith is dormant. And Alma gives one of the best definitions of faith that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. He says in verse 21, Faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. And before that, he's talking about the difference between faith and belief. And he seems to imply that it's more blessed to believe than to know. And this ties in with what he was saying about uh, when they first show up, he says, I see that you've been compelled to be humble. And if so, if so, if you are humble, whether you've been compelled or not, then blessed are ye. But I want to tell you that it's better to choose to be humble. It's better to humble yourselves because you've heard the word of God that appeals to you on some level that's deep inside of you than it is to be compelled to be humble. And compulsion, let's... We've, we've had a recent example of compulsion. Uh, Korahor was compelled to believe. Okay, you remember that he asked for a sign, and Alma said, look, uh, I'm not going to give you this sign in the person of anyone else but you. So if you keep asking for a sign, you're going to get it, but you're not going to like it. And he said, no, I'm not going to believe unless you give me a sign. So he said, okay, here's your sign. You won't have any more utterance. You will be struck dumb from this moment on. And Korahor never spoke another word in his life. So Korahor believed at that point, but he was compelled to believe. And because he was compelled to believe, there was no real change. When he asked Alma to take the curse away, Alma said, No, if I do, you'll just go and lead these, this people astray again. So he had some sort of phys- uh, sorry, uh, he had some witness that this is the course that Korahor would take. So Korahor had not changed, even though he had been forced to believe. He had been compelled to believe. Uh, To give you another example, I believe that Alma was consciously here comparing himself to his own father. So Alma the Younger was compelled to believe by this angel who appeared before him. And basically at that point, Alma could not deny that God was real and that God expected him to act a certain way. Everything his father had been teaching him was true. Now, he had the same choice. I, I gave you a, a question, you know, did, did his agency 
depart when that angel appeared. Now, in some ways, yes, he no longer had the freedom not to believe, but he still had the freedom to do what Korahor did, which was reject that belief. And uh, once the angel was gone, return back to his wicked ways. Now, Alma didn't. He, he magnified what he had been shown. But as he says in here in chapter 32, he says, if you sin against that sort of certainty, then, then you're in a world of hurt. Then the condemnation is so much greater. But if you sin against just humbling yourselves, then you have a greater opportunity to repent. Alma the Elder, on the other hand, he was in the court of the wicked King Noah, and he one day saw the preaching of a man named Abinadi, a, a prophet, a holy prophet. He was touched, and he decided on the on that short of notice, he decided to throw it all over and to throw in his lot with the teachings of Abinadi, even though Abinadi was condemned to death. So Alma the elder is the perfect example of someone who humbled himself because of the word. And Alma the younger is the perfect example of someone who is compelled to be humble. So he's describing this difference to the Zoramites because for him it's real. He wants them to have the greater blessings that his father had rather than the lesser blessings that he had. He knew the greater blessings that came from choosing to believe. And so the point that he's making is being compelled to believe is not a choice, and God rewards choices. And so there is actually a great number of blessings in store for those who will simply choose to believe. Uh, You may remember Elder Holland had a talk about this where there was a, a young boy who came up to him and he said, you know, Elder Holland, I, I just don't feel like I know the gospel's true. I, I only believe. Is that okay? And and Elder Holland described hugging this young man uh, till his eyes bulged out. You may remember that. It, was a, it got a lot of laughs in conference. And the point that he was making was it's totally fine to believe. This is a blessed, blessed thing. And Alma expresses this to the Zoramites who come to him in chapter 32. So Alma doesn't teach them any doctrine. He simply teaches them how to know what they know, how to know whether the seed is any good. And at the end, he identifies the seed. He says, if after you know it's a good seed, then you nurture it and you give it all the care that you would have to give to a little tiny seedling until it becomes a tree. You've got to prune it. You've got to fertilize it. You've got to water it. You've got to get it sunlight. You've got to protect it from the wind, whatever you've got to do. If you nurture this tree in the way that you would, you would want to nurture a tree, that you would nurture a fruit tree that you want to eat from, then you'll be able to eat the fruit. And I'm telling you right now that the fruit of the lesson I'm teaching you is the fruit of the tree of life. That's in verse 40. He says, if you want to, the, the tree is identified as the tree of life. So I'm going to make a point here, which is Alma is using Genesis language. Whenever you hear Genesis language, you want to understand what's going on. So he is hearkening back to the time of the fall. This is the the very point of the gospel in all of the scriptures. When you see the temple, the, the whole point of the temple ordinances are to show you that the effects of the fall upon man can be reversed. Man can walk back into the presence of God. Man was in the presence of God after the creation, but the fall removed us from the presence of God. But we can make it back. So that's what the temple does. That's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ reverses the effects of the fall. Now, what was Korahor trying to do? He was trying to reverse the effects 
of the creation itself. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Korahor was saying, Whatsoever a man doeth is no crime, that man prospers according to his genius, he conquers according to his strength, and everything that happens is because of his management of the creature. So, man, there's nothing special about man. Man is like every other thing that exists on the earth. There are animals out there, and they kill each other for food. There, there are trees and wind and rocks, and uh, there are all kinds of violence in the world, and it is what it is. And if you want to get ahead, you've got to do whatever you need to do to get ahead. There is no right and wrong. Now, this teaching goes explicitly against the idea that man was created in the image of God, meaning man was designed to eventually know the difference between good and evil and be able to make choices. As Lehi described it in 2 Nephi chapter 2, man was designed to act and not be acted upon. That was the creation. And what Korahor is saying is, no such creation ever took place. What are the Zoramites teaching? One of their main teachings was that God is a spirit. They would say on the Ramiumptum, they'd say, we know thou art a spirit, and thou hast been a spirit, and there will always will be a spirit. There is no resurrection. So they were trying to undo the atonement. Now, in the plan of salvation, there are three pillars, the creation, the fall, and the atonement. But of those three, two of them are things that raise us closer to the level of God, and one of them is something that lowers us down to the level of earth, right? The creation and the atonement, they lift us to our Heavenly Father, they bring us close to Him, and the fall is designed to give us a probationary period away from God. But as Alma expressed, if that probationary period were to be permanent, then the, the entire plan of God would have been frustrated and we'd all be in hell. Basically, this life is a punishment already if it were to last forever because we're separated from God. And so therefore, we'd, if there is no atonement, there was no creation, this is all there is, then that is a perfect description of hell itself. So even though Alma is not introducing any doctrine at this stage, he slips in a little idea that, look, you can eat the fruit of the tree of life. Remember, Alma, or I'm sorry, uh, Adam and Eve were separated. At the time of the fall, they were separated from the tree of life by a guardian angel with a flaming sword. They could never go back to the tree of life and partake of it and th- because then they would live forever in their sins. But what Alma is saying is, if you want to eat of the fruit of that tree, you can. You can arrive again at the fruit of the tree, uh, at the tree of life, and eat of the fruit, if you are willing to reverse the effects of the fall. And Jesus Christ can help you do that. So he implies that he he slips in a little bit of doctrine right at the end. He says, "And this is the tree that we've been growing all along. It's the tree of life. We can reverse the fall." And the the apostates that Alma has been dealing with, they don't want to reverse the fall. What they want to do is reverse either the creation or the atonement. They want to attack the other two uplifting pillars of the plan of salvation rather than the one that Jesus Christ himself attacked and reversed. So in chapter 33 is when Alma, now they start asking doctrinal questions. The Zoramites say, uh, in verse 1 it says, They sent forth unto him, desiring to know whether they should believe in one God, that they might obtain this fruit, or how they should plant the seed. So now they've got questions. Wait, are you saying we should believe in Christ? Now, Alma is going to teach them to believe in Christ, but even now, he sort of couches it in a teaching about something else. 
So their first question to him was, how can we worship? We're, we're kicked out of our synagogues. I get the point I'm making with all of this is how masterful and spiritually guided a missionary Alma and Amulek, Alma is and Amulek is. So uh, he could have immediately jumped to talking about Jesus Christ, which is no doubt what he wanted to talk about. This is why he rejoices in the gospel. But he understands what the Zoramites are ready to hear. What they want to know is, how and where can we worship? We don't have any means of worshiping right now, and we feel this lack in our lives. So, so what Alma says is, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you from these scriptures that you have definitely learned from, right? You were Nephites at one point. You've learned the scriptures. Here's the prophet Zenos that we all know and appreciate. What does he describe? He describes praying at all times and in all places. Incidentally, uh, we're not going to spend much time on this idea, but the prophet Zenos, as you know, is not found in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, he's a Jerusalem Old Testament era prophet. So Zenic also mentioned a few times in the Book of Mormon, both in First and Second Nephi and here in uh, Alma chapter 33. So the I can presume, I I think this is probably true, even though Joseph Smith, I don't think, translated the brass plates, there would have been more written about Zenos and Zenic in the manuscript that Joseph, of the first several books of the Book of Mormon that Joseph Smith lost at one point. And so I love this little insight into the character of Zenos because it's all we have. I wish that we had the rest of the Book of Mormon or perhaps... Uh, one day, the, a translation of the brass plates, wouldn't that be wonderful? Because then we'd have the full writings of Zenos, and we'd have a description of who he is. Uh, but we do get this insight, and we know, so now we know more about Zenos than we knew before. He is somebody who has been persecuted and cruelly mistreated for believing in Christ and for preaching in Christ. And he is here praising God for answering his prayers when he, pray, when he prays for relief from those who are persecuting him. In verse 10, quoting Zenos, he says, Thou hast also heard me, this is Zenos' prayer to God, when I have been cast out and have been despised by mine enemies, thou didst hear my cries and was angry with mine enemies and didst visit them in thine anger with speedy destruction. Thou didst hear me because of mine afflictions and my sincerity, and it is because of thy son that thou hast been thus merciful unto me. So as he's talking about prayer, as he's meeting their need, as he's answering their primary question, where can we worship? Alma finds a way to slip in a message about Jesus. Look, Zenos taught us how and where to pray. It's everywhere. And what did he pray for? He prayed in praise to God about Jesus Christ. He prayed about the Son of God saying, this is, how mercy, this is where mercy comes from. And my point in all of this is that this probably wasn't an easy set of conversions for Alma to facilitate. Uh, They they were not ready to believe in Christ. I I sort of gather that from what I'm reading here. They were probably very difficult to convince. They had been humbled, and Alma was happy to see that, and yet it required a lot of work. This was not a guaranteed result, and I've always sort of read these chapters with that assumption. Maybe you have too. I don't know. Maybe I'm just telling you things you already know and it's obvious to you. But for me, it was it came as sort of a revelation. Wait a minute. 
These weren't the golden contacts that I've always sort of assumed, that as soon as Alma started teaching them, they'd been humbled, they were ready for everything he had to hear. It wasn't like King Lamoni or his father who both said, yes, I will believe the words that you teach me, right? I'm ready to hear whatever you have to say. Now, that was a golden contact. But these Zoramites, they're saying, you know what? We don't know where to worship. Can you help us answer that one question? Because we want to be more faithful Zoramites. We want to be able to pray on a Ramiumptum of our own. And that's where spiritually they were at. And Alma is willing to meet them there and bring them step by step to a belief in Jesus. So along with answering their question about where and how they can pray, Alma has... Uh, sort of through an object lesson in talking about Zenos, he's taught them a few things. Number one, he's taught them that you have recourse to the scriptures. So he has said, hey, don't you know the scriptures about Zenos? Don't you know the scriptures about Zenic? They Both of these prophets from the brass plates, they tell, they tell you exactly where and when you can pray, which is everywhere and all the time. And so, but in answering that question in that way, he's also teaching them the scriptures are the way you answer this sort of question. So he's still teaching them epistemology. How do we know what we know? How can you know? This is the job of a prophet. How can you know whether what I'm telling you is true? Secondly, uh, he's teaching them the actual doctrine. You can worship anywhere. Jesus Christ taught this very doctrine, by the way. In John chapter 4, he met a woman, a Samaritan woman at the well. This is John chapter 4, verses 20 through 23. Uh, she says, look, uh, you guys all, you Jews, you all worship in Jerusalem, but it, it used to be that Jews worshiped on this very mountain, which was true in the time of Moses and Joshua. The Jews had not yet conquered the land of Jerusalem, and they, they did worship in the land of the Samaritans, which is in eastern uh, what is today Eastern Israel, or even the Palestinian Authority. And so she was making that point that it, it, it used to be that we could worship here, but now it's only okay to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, look, the time's coming and now is that neither here nor in Jerusalem can people worship. Uh, you have to worship on your own. You have to worship God in spirit and in truth. In other words, exactly the way that Zenus described, you have to pray for him always, pray to him always. So Jesus taught that very lesson, interestingly enough. And thirdly, uh, he slipped in this, this prayer that Zenus had about Christ, saying, Christ is the reason that God can have mercy towards me. Uh, thank you, God, for saving me from my enemies because of thy son. And the Zoramites now are having this prayer that they must have read in their brass plates. They, they, in their copies of the brass plates, whatever form they took, uh, they, they've read this prayer of Zenic. Obviously, they must have been familiar with it, or Alma would not have had such success by quoting it. So he's taught them those three things, that Scripture teaches you truth, that you can worship anytime and anywhere, and Christ is the source of God's mercy. Zenic reinforces, in verse 16, Zenic reinforces that, that teaching. And then he gets into an interesting uh, set of teachings about Moses. He says, Moses also taught about Jesus, but instead of saying, instead of giving the same example about Zenic and Zenus that Moses had taught explicitly about Christ, what does Alma bring up? He brings up the episode of the brazen serpent, and this is a story from Numbers chapter 21. So if you read Numbers chapter 21, it's in verses 4 through 9, you will read that 
there were murmurings among the Israelites that God sent fire, what is in the King James Version called fiery flying serpents. And if you were to retranslate that, you would probably come up with something like uh, swiftly striking poisonous serpents. So fiery and flying, they both have uh, more rational meanings. These weren't supernatural snakes. So I want you if I want you to think about this again for a moment too. So I'm trying to I'm trying to put you in the mindset of people who lived in the time in the scriptural times that are being described, and that's why I'm describing maybe what the attitude of these Zoramites would have been, rather than what we always assume. And now I want to put you in the mindset of the Israelites when these snakes start start striking. Well, you know, in the scriptures, it's really easy because time is compressed, events are compressed and abridged. And so all we learn is the Israelites were murmuring and then a bunch of snake poisonous snakes appeared and started biting them and people are dying. But what probably happened is people are murmuring, not everyone. Snakes are biting. Not everyone who murmured gets bit, and there is a fair amount of time in between the one and the other, so it's not clear that it's a result, right? So this was a way for God to teach a uh, spiritual lesson, but he, if he puts these, these consequences right after the sin, and if he always attaches it to the person who committed the sin, then there really is no agency, if there is a one-to-one correspondence with immediate punishment and sin, then there is no agency. No one would sin. So the point is, God wants to teach a spiritual lesson. He doesn't just want to punish their murmuring. And so he sends sort of indiscriminate snakes, and they start biting people. And Moses prays, and then he gets an answer. So, t- so time is passing as all this is occurring, but that's not related in the account in the book of Numbers. If you read the book of Numbers, you think, oh, all this might have happened on just one day, and a bunch of snakes appeared, and then no one would look, you know, or then Moses prayed and built a, a serpent, and then people who looked were, were well. In the Numbers account, you don't actually learn that there were people who weren't willing to look. They would rather die than die of snake bite poison than look at this brazen serpent. We have to go to the Book of Mormon to learn this. And we also have to go there to learn that it was a type of Christ, that Moses was given these instructions so that he could teach them what it was like to look at Jesus and live. But Alma understands that. So obviously there's some more insight to be gained from the brass plates than from our current translations of the Bible, which is very interesting and very insightful. I would not expect Joseph Smith to come up with this insightful of a teaching by himself. It's amazing. And the point Alma makes from all this is, if you had an opportunity to look at something that you knew would heal you, would ye not behold quickly? Or would you be so stubborn that you would rather die than look at, than do something so simple as to look? And of course, the answer, when you're hearing the story, there is no other answer. Of course, you're going to say, well, yeah, I'd look. And so he, he's saying, right, it's just as simple now, so you've got to look. Keep in mind, these Soramites are not yet converted. They're not even used to the idea that they can believe in Christ. They are just barely planting this seed, and some of them are feeling the first swellings, and uh, that that's, they're noticing that the seed is sprouting just a tiny bit. So they're believing it's a good fruit, but they're not any or a good tree, but they're not 
anywhere near eating the fruit. And that's the situation that they're in. So now, at the end of chapter 33, Alma sits down and Amulek stands up and in 34 teaches his amazing sermon. This is one of the best sermons on the urgency of repentance to be found anywhere. And Amulek says right away, in verse 5, he says, The great question in your minds is whether the word be in the Son of God, as taught by the prophets of old and by us, myself and Alma, whether the word be in the Son of God or whether there be no Christ. So as taught, and this is implied, as taught by those who have cast you out. And in my mind, he's he's now laying it before them. Look, uh, I don't know why you would believe these guys who cast you out, but obviously they're not very nice guys. Why would you want to take your spiritual beliefs from them? And Amulet gets explicit with the idea. He says in verse 2, look, I know it's impossible that before you left from being Nephites, it's impossible you weren't taught these things. And so you know what is taught about Christ. But I want to tell you something. In, in reference to what Alma has been teaching, I want to tell you that I know of myself. So in other words, I have planted this tree, and I not only saw that it sprouted a little leaf out of the ground, a, a little tiny weed-looking thing, but it grew into a mighty tree for me, and I have eaten of the fruit. I know of myself. So I chose belief consistently enough and long enough that it became knowledge. So I, and, that, and that is the blessed course. That is what Alma was trying to imply earlier when he said, it's more blessed to believe than to know. Basically what it was meaning is the kind of knowledge that you have after a, an extended course of belief is different than compelled knowledge. The compelled knowledge of Korahor versus the willing knowledge of Amulek, somebody who was facing resistance to belief and nevertheless chose it until the point when he can say, I know for myself that these things are true. In other words, in teaching that belief is more blessed than knowledge, what I, what I mean to say is not that belief never leads to knowledge, but that the kind of knowledge, there's a different quality of knowledge that comes when you gain it through belief than when you gain it through a sign. So after this introduction, Amulek goes after the heart of the disagreements about Jesus Christ, and he says, look, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus Christ pays for our sin. Now, this might not ring true for you, because how could one person pay for the sin of another? If someone murders, why would it be just? Why would it be according to the justice of God that another person could put themselves in, in the murderer's place and say, well, that he murdered, but you should execute me. No, the law is going to execute the, de- the demands of justice upon the person who committed the sin. That's the way law works, and that's the way justice works. It would never be justice for the plan of God to allow one person to step in to the place of another, especially that, that person stepping in is a, is a sinner too. So the difference between what's going on in our little scenario here and what actually happens with the atonement of Jesus Christ, Amulek, Amulek teaches, is that the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the plan of salvation. The whole law of Moses has been pointing to this great and eternal sacrifice the entire time. That is the purpose of the law of Moses. And what's more, it's infinite. And so it doesn't just pay for your sins. 
It changes the whole nature of how man relates to sin and the consequences for it. Before the atonement, the sin and the consequences for sin are a guarantee and they're locked in. After the atonement, there is a miraculous means of escape. The atonement is elsewhere called the great reconciliation, and that's because what Jesus Christ enabled us to do was to bury the hatchet, so to speak, or to use a Book of Mormon metaphor, bury our weapons of war towards God and make a covenant with him that we were willing to put our sins far from us. But that would not have been enough had Jesus Christ not changed the nature of our relationship so that he could extend mercy to us across the chasm, this bridge of mercy across the chasm of justice. Now again we have in verse 14, we have support for the idea that in the Book of Mormon they understood the purpose of the Law of Moses from from the very inception of it was to point us, to, to, to give us object lessons about what it meant for Jesus Christ to perform the atonement. So the lamb being killed, the goat being driven into the wilderness with the Israelites' sins upon it. All of these things are types of Christ, and the law of Moses is a conscious set of symbols that point us to that great and last sacrifice. So this further support, as we've seen many examples of support before this, here's one more example. It's further support for this idea that the law of Moses is a schoolmaster, as Paul the Apostle called it, leading us to Christ. Now there is an object lesson in the brass plates in 1 Samuel chapter 25, we have the story of David and Abigail. And this, I learned about this story, I learned the greater import of this story from a book called The Hidden Christ by James Farrell. I recommend this book very, very highly. When I was teaching uh, the year on the, on the Old Testament, I used it almost every week because what it does is it shows how Jesus Christ how his teachings, how his object lessons are buried within this, the events and the stories and the revelations of the Old Testament all over the place. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And his favorite chapter, his favorite story is here in 1 Samuel 25. It's, he calls it the allegory of salvation. And it's basically the, the events of the story are these, that David is hiding out in the wilderness because King Saul wants to kill him. But while he's hiding, he happens to be close to the homestead of a man named Nabal. And Nabal has a wife named Abigail. And while he's hiding, he, he commands a certain number of armed men, and he protects Nabal. And so in the normal course of events, David sends to Nabal and says, Hey, do you mind providing us with some food? We've been protecting you. And Nabal says, Well, we never had an agreement. I'm not going to give you any food. You're a bunch of people out there, and that would impoverish me. And it wouldn't have, by the way. But he says, you know, forget it. Well, David is so upset that he is on his way to kill Nabal. But Abigail finds out that her husband has refused David, this honorable man that everybody is proud of because he killed Goliath. He's refused him some simple provisions for his men. So she gets everything ready. She puts it all upon some beasts of burden and goes out to meet him. And before he can reach her home and kill her husband, she prostrates herself on the ground before him and says, My Lord, upon me let this sin be, and look not with anger upon thine handmaid. So Abigail is willing to intercede on her husband's behalf and take his sins upon her. She didn't do it. 
and yet here she is making up for the sin and pleading for forgiveness. Well, uh, part of the reason that she pleads for forgiveness is, look, not only should you forgive my husband because uh, I'm here asking you, but who knows but that you might be making a mistake, and I don't want this sin to come upon you. So she's not only saving uh, she's she's saved not only saving her husband, but she is saving David himself by putting herself in between the two of them and taking basically the position that Christ takes in the mercy of God. So we have this wonderful example in the scriptures already of how one person could intercede for another. This is a lesson that also, in addition to the teachings of Zenic and Zenus in the brass plates, the Zoramites would have had access to in their scriptures. So that's the point I wanted to make in that little side note. Now let's return to Alma chapter 34. In verses 17 through 27, Amulek, he echoes the teachings of Zenus as taught by Alma. Basically, those teachings are pray at all times and in all places and, and thank God that Jesus Christ is the source of mercy for you. He adds uh, something from King Benjamin's address. He says, we secure, in verses 28 through 29, we secure our salvation by sharing of our substance with the poor. This was one of the teachings of Jesus Christ as well. It's mirrored perfectly in King Benjamin's address, and it has been echoed by modern-day apostles. So we should never neglect that. Among all the things we do, we should not neglect to take care of the poor. This is part of our repentance, and it's part of the arm of mercy being extended towards us. Now in verses 30 through 38, the last part of the chapter, Amulek does the most amazing job in imparting a sense of urgency. And again, this is an act of love. Uh, if, you were, if, you, if Alma and Amulek were selling used cars, I would say this was an act of being overdramatic or exaggerating their case. Uh, but in either, the reason I bring up used cars is in either case, it is a, an amazing job of salesmanship because for the first thing that Alma does is teach about how we know what we know and then slowly interest, introduces the idea that we can have recourse to Scripture, we can have recourse to uh, trying an experiment on the Word, and then that Jesus Christ is the source of our mercy, and then Amulek comes in and says, not only do we have to believe in Christ, but we've got to do it right now because if you wait, the consequences are horrible. Unlike earthly salesmanship, the Spirit was assisting them and giving them, obviously, guidance in how to do such a masterful job. But a masterful job was still required because the Zoramites were undergoing a very difficult process of conversion against which they had very strong resistance. Their whole culture was against it, as we'll discover. They paid a fantastic price for converting and even though they didn't know the price they would pay, at this point, uh, they knew there was resistance against it. They knew that they would not be socially accepted for believing in Christ. One of the interesting things about Amulek's lesson on urgency is that the he makes the point that we can't procrastinate the day of our repentance. And another word for procrastinated repentance is planned repentance. So if I plan to repent at some point in the future, but I'm not willing to start repenting, what it means is that I'm thinking it's more likely in the future that I will repent than it is today. What occurred to me as I was pondering this was, what if one of these poor Zoramites came to Alma and said, look, Alma, uh, I've been kicked out of my synagogue, but 
I have a chance. They've let me know that I can come back to the Ramiumptum Church on the on a probationary basis, and so I I figure that it'll take them about three weeks to discover that I don't have any money after all, and then they'll kick me out again. So for those three weeks, I want to go back and pray at the Ramiumptum every Sunday, and then I'll be back. I'm sure I'll come back, and then I'll repent. And what would Alma's response be to this, right? If you if you can imagine what his response would be, then you can understand. The, the logical fallacies that exist and the slippery slope that exists in planned repentance because this person goes back to the Ramiumptum church and he gets invested in a system that instead of being about worshiping God and getting closer to him, it's about where do you fall on this ladder of status? Do you, ra- do you rise or do you fall by putting other people down or letting them put you down? And do you com- what sins do you commit that cause shame along the way? And at the end of that time, you think you're going to be more likely to come back and repent? No, today is the day when you're not invested in that system. You've been compelled to be humble. So if you were to go back and lose that compulsion to be humble, then the all in all likelihood, you'll never repent. If you succeed in ingratiating yourself in, in Zoramite society among the elites, why would you ever repent? You've now got what you wanted, which is to be recognized among men. Only when you can forsake that desire, and it's not a natural desire, it's like walking uphill to prefer the approval of God over the approval of the people around us because we can't see God. So the, the modern-day analog is perhaps, I mean, we all of us face this temptation to put off repenting, but uh, young people especially, I remember being taught this when I was young, and it was, look, you're going to think that I'm going to go out and party, have fun, uh, commit immoral sins, perhaps word of wisdom sins, perhaps law of chastity sins, and then I'm going to repent and go on a mission, or repent and get married in the temple, and I'm going to plan my repentance now, commit the sins now, and repent later. And the fallacy of this is you're going to get invested in a system that rewards you in a different way that God rewards you. And you are going to learn to crave those rewards and prefer those rewards. And right now you're compelled to be humble. Right now you're listening. But at, in, at some future date when you have learned to prefer that, the likelihood is against you wanting to repent. And then that this is totally aside from the fact that now you have more sins to your charge that you must repent for. You are going to, if your repentance is sincere, you are going to regret every one of them far more than the enjoyment you get out of it. And therefore, procrastinating the day of your repentance is a terrible idea. And once again, that's aside from the fact that you could die before this process is complete, right? We none of us know how much time we have. And so if this if we have procrastinated the day of our repentance unto the end, then we've actually made a very significant choice, which is, I don't really want what God has to offer. So that is Amulek's point, is it's really urgent. And the urgency isn't because we don't have a lot of time. We might have a lot of time. We might have plenty of time to repent 15 times over. But right now is the time when we're willing to do it. If, and that willingness is a precious thing. If you squander it, it's going to be very expensive 
the next time you want to use it. You have to create that willingness, and you have to take this seed, and you have to grow it again into a little tiny thing rather than having the tree that you could have access to today. We find out in chapter 35 that there were many people who believed. Alma and Amulek and those who went with them are so tired after their mission that they go to the nearby land of Jershon. And you remember that the the people of Ammon live in the land of Jershon. And after they leave, the Zoramites have this secret referendum, which is, and it says in the Book of Mormon, it says here in chapter 35 that they were, the word made them angry because it destroyed all their doctrine. (laughs) And that's true. Their doctrine was there is no resurrection, there is no Christ. And because there's no resurrection and no Christ, Remember, the the judgment and the resurrection are intimately tied together every time in the Book of Mormon. And so because there's no resurrection and no Christ, there's no judgment. We don't have to worry about our choices. There is no sin. But this doctrine had totally destroyed that, and they hated it. So they exile everybody who voted to adopt it. And so it was just a means of discovering the believers, this referendum. It wasn't an actual attempt to understand the will of the people. They exile every believer in Christ, and all of these believers, they find their way over to the land of Jershon as well. Now, I want to draw something to your attention. The Zoramites who remain behind, they're not happy. They're not satisfied in having exiled everyone. They want them to never find a place to live again. And this is three or four levels beyond simple exile. The Zoramites are so angry at the people of Ammon for taking in their converts that they exiled, that they begin the process of waging war against them. Not only that, but they're willing to go to the Lamanites to find the allies they need. Think about this for a minute. The Zoramites kick out the converts. First, they they lie to discover who the converts are. Then they kick them out. The converts have to leave. They're exiled. They probably left all their worldly goods and wealth behind. But that's not enough because they find a place that they can begin to start over. And rather than allow that to happen, I would rather wage war upon the people who sheltered them. Where does all this hatred come from? That's my question. So there is some hatred here. There are vast amounts of hostility. Where does it come from? Why are they so upset? Now, the text is silent on this. All we have is whatever guesses we can come up with. And we can try to find support for whatever our guess is, but we, we never can know for sure why they're so upset, why it's worth fighting and killing over that these converted Zoramites should at some point be find a happy place to resettle. It hints at a level of hatred that is far beyond anything that we can find justified by their actions. So the only thing I can come up with is that they had had this system where they go to church for prestige and for esteem and for status. And because they now have, a lot of the people who had low status in their society have been kicked out. They have nobody to have low status anymore. And when there's nobody with low status, then having high status is meaningless. And so the only way they can maintain their status is to continue to mistreat them even though they're gone. This is the very definition of corruption in power. Now, what Korahor wanted to do was to reverse the creation and make man like one of the beasts that God also created, not knowing good and evil, but, not, but living in a world where good and evil don't even exist. 
Now, Alma and Amulek would have had no way of knowing this, but the prophet Daniel taught, and I've referred many times to Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel taught that the governments of this world are like beasts themselves. When men are given free reign to rule however they will, then generally what happens is the worst kind of people rise to the top, and then the government becomes an embodiment of this anti-created being where they never do the will of God, they only do the evil thing. And Daniel describes it in chapter 7 as the beasts trampling around and there were none to deliver, which perfectly describes the power of the state. The state has having a, manipul- a monopoly on violence. The state then can, if it's corrupt, can mistreat people and there is no one to stop them. So that's the kind of society that would have resulted from the teachings of Korahor had he survived. And that's the kind of society that the rich Zoramites have already created. They are a beast, and they have to trample because that's what beasts do. And mistreating exiles for, the, for their beliefs is what corrupt governments do. Corrupt governments don't happen because, by accident. They happen because of evil choices on behalf of the people who either aspire for power or who hold power. And that, incidentally, is one of the reasons why we pray for when we, in the Lord's Prayer, we pray for God's kingdom to come because we want God to come upon earth and have his kingdom here and reign upon us because we will never have a corrupt government again. We will never be subjected to the beast. The final point I want to make about Alma chapters 32 through 35 is this. We're, gi- we're given in chapter 31 a list of all the missionaries that go on this mission. It's Alma, it's Amulek, it's Ammon, Aaron, Omner, the sons of Mosiah. It's Zeezrom, Corianton. Corianton, as we'll learn, we'll learn more about Corianton. And Shiblon, Alma's sons, uh, Shiblon and Corianton. All but one of these people, all but two of them, are notorious already for being sinners, and they're reformed. And all but, all but one of them, uh, in other words, we learn about one of those people that's not yet known to be a sinner. We learn that he actually uh, committed quite a number of terrible sins while on his mission. So, of these eight missionaries, all but one have a very checkered past and have had great struggles with the Spirit and opportunity to repent for things that are horrible, horrible sins that would have caused them a ton of remorse. This mission to the Zoramites is the greatest example that exists of the Book of Mormon missionary cycle. And here is that cycle, Abinadi, speaking in front of the wicked priests of evil King Noah. One man listens, Alma the Elder, and he begins a church and sets a series of events in motion that will convert his son, Alma the Younger. And he is a missionary and is instrumental in the conversion of Amulek. Amulek helps to convert Zeezrom. Zeezrom is now a missionary and, and helps to convert many people in the land of the Zoramites. And the point to all of this is this. It's proof that the Lord works through imperfect vessels to accomplish much good. And so if you have ever felt like you are not good enough, that God doesn't want anything from you, he doesn't care about what you do, remember that God took Alma, Amulek, the sons of Mosiah, Corianton, and Zeezrom, on a mission to the Zoramites. Wow! God did that with these, the very vilest of sinners. What would he be willing to do for you if you will be willing not to procrastinate the day of your repentance? 
But rather than waiting for a sign, choose to be humble because of the word. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.